It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Homegoing by Yaa Jesse was published in 2016. The novel begins on Africa's Gold Coast in the 18th century. Two half-sisters, Afia and Essie, are born in different villages into different tribes, the Fanti and Ashanti. Afia leaves her village to become the illegitimate wife of a British soldier who's trafficking humans in the slave trade. Essie is captured during a raid, enslaved, and sent to the American South. The book follows the descendants of these two sisters through eight generations, one family remaining in Africa and the other in the United States. Through their stories, we see the long legacy of slavery and colonization. The novel is searing, brutal, beautiful, and often profound. It won many awards, including the National Book Award in 2017, and Yaa Jesse is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. This hour, I'll be exploring the book with two expert readers, and first I would like to introduce Rochelle Chase. She is the founder of Uniting Through History, author of two nonfiction books about Buxton, Iowa, and a columnist for the Des Moines Register. Rochelle, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. It is wonderful to see you, and I would love for you to start us off with a short excerpt from the book. And this is from deep in the novel. This is chapter 11. Yaw is a history teacher in Ghana around 1950, and he has a terrible burn scar on his face. On the first day of class, he asks his students to share the stories they've heard about his scar, and then he turns that into a lesson about the history that we're taught. Would you read that for us? Of course. Whose story is correct, Yah asked them. They looked around at the boys who had spoken, as though trying to establish their allegiance by holding a gaze, casting a vote by sending a glance. Finally, once the murmuring subsided, Peter raised his hand. Mr. Agayukum, we cannot know who, which story is correct. He looked at the rest of the class, slowly understanding. We cannot know which story is correct because we were not there. Yah nodded. He sat in his chair at the front of the room and looked at all the young men. This is the problem of history. We cannot know that which we were not there to see and hear and experience for ourselves. We must rely upon the words of others. Those who were there in the olden days, they told stories to the children so that the children would know, so that the children could tell stories to their children, and so on and so on. But now we come upon the problem of conflicting stories. Kojo Narco says that when the warriors came to his village, their coats were red. But Kwame Adu says that they were blue. Whose story do we believe then? The boys were silent. They stared at him, waiting. We believe the one who has the power. He is the one who gets to write the story. So when you study history, you must always ask yourself, whose story am I missing? Whose voice was suppressed so that the story could come forth? Once you have figured that out, you must find that story too. From there, you begin to get a clearer, yet still imperfect picture. The room was still. The birds on the ledge were still waiting for their food to come, still crying for their mother. Yaw gave the boys some time to think about what he had just said, to respond. But when no one did, he continued. Let us open our textbooks to page. One of the students was coughing. Yaw looked up to see William with his hand raised. He nodded at the boy to speak. But, Mr. Ayugokum, saw, you still have not told us the story of how you got your scar. Yaw could feel all the boys directing their gazes towards him, but he kept his head down. 
He resisted the urge to put his hand up to the left side of his face, feel the raised and leathery skin there with its many ripples and lines that, when he was still just a child, reminded Yah of a map. He had wanted that map to lead him out of Edwiso, and in some ways it had. His village could hardly look, hardly look at him and had collected money to send him to school so that he could learn, but also, Yah suspected, so that they would not have to be reminded of their shame. In other ways, the map of Yah's scarred skin had led him nowhere. He had not married. He would not lead. Edwiso had come with him. Yah did not touch his, stars, his scar. Instead, he set his book down carefully and reminded himself to smile. He said, I was only a baby. All I know is what I've heard. That is Rochelle Chase reading an excerpt from the novel Homegoing by Yah Jesse. And we'll talk more about that passage. And uh, I, for me, it feels very much like the thesis of the entire novel. But we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Rochelle, tell me a little bit about your first encounter with this novel, because this was the second time that you've read it. Yeah, I think I had read or started the audiobook several years ago. And so when you said, OK, let's read this, I thought, OK, great. It's it's fine. But I didn't realize how hard it was. Um, it is very emotional. It is very heartbreaking. Um, there's so much in here uh, that to really process and really get. Yeah. And I I want to acknowledge that I, I felt that too. It was also a very difficult novel for me to read. But I, I want to acknowledge the emotional labor that I asked of you in reading this book, because this is also not just our nation's history, our world's history, but this is also your personal history as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it is, it's a tough read. So coming back to the book this time, other than it being hard, <laughs> emotional labor, what was your response? I Well, I think it's a great book. I think it's a book that everybody should read, especially when we look at the narrative, the slavery, the story of slavery that was told, that is told still today, sometimes in schools. Um, I think it gives a really clear picture, especially when you want to oversimplify, you know, oh, the Africans, they sold themselves. I mean, they sold their people. And I remember as a kid hearing that, like as if that explained it was our fault. Mm. But this book deals with complexity. It's not that simple. And I think there's a passage in here where one of the one of the characters, I, there's so many, I don't remember who it was, had said that it's all of our faults. It's the different tribes. It's the Dutch. It's the British. I mean, this is a complicated issue. So I think that was a big thing um, that I think um, Yah def- definitely spends a lot of time with in the beginning. So you kind of understand some of those complexities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, for those of us who learned this history in school growing up, um, just the, the mention of what had happened in Africa was so brief, as if people were snatched from Africa and slavery was just, you know, an American story. Right. And it is a global story. But I, I thought that... Her, she just shed so much light on the colonialism and on how deeply impacted Africa and this part of Africa particularly was by the slave trade and how that continues there just as it continues here. Exactly. Exactly. I want to bring our second expert reader into the conversation as well. Makiba Levan is an assistant professor of English at Grinnell College. Makiba, welcome. Hi. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. It is wonderful to have you here as well. And this was the first time that you read this novel. Tell me about your reaction. Yes. So I, this novel has been on my radar since it came out because I teach African-American literature in an African-American survey that covers, um, you know, slavery and early American history. Um, but I had not gotten the chance to read it. And so I jumped at this opportunity to read it because I, you know, I knew it would be a book that I would probably eventually want to teach. Um, and I totally agree with everything that y'all have said so far. It was an emotional journey. Um, it was rough to read. It was, I, I feel like it was unnecessary read though, um, as you said, Rochelle, because it illuminates not only the institutional structures, but the interpersonal relationships that form those structures. And I think having both of those, you know, in a book that people can read is so important because we tend to focus on one or the other, right? We tend to say, well, Africans sold sold their people. So it's, you know, they're just as culpable. We tend to focus on institutional racism, but institutional racism is carried out by people. And so having both of those things, I think, um, is part of what makes this book so brilliant. Like you really feel the interpersonal choices that people are making. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, this is a historical look. It is a historical lesson for a lot of readers. I certainly learned a lot from this book, and it sent me in different directions to, you know, explore different things. And in fact, Yad Jesse, I listened to an interview with her, and she said, because she started this novel back in 2009 when she was at Stanford University. She was an undergrad, and um, she said that she had a line in one of her novels or in, in one of her journals that just said, this project is going to take so much research. <laughs> I mean, this it is a deep historical exploration, but Makiba, it's so personal. And, and that's, I think, one of the beauties of it, because even though we only spend about 30 pages with each one of these characters, I felt like we really care about each one of them deeply. Yeah. Agreed. And you really get the full, you only get the full picture by reading the interwoven stories. And I think that's such a beautiful metaphor for the history that's played out on the pages. Yeah. I want to talk about um, family because family is a theme that stretches throughout this novel. And we're going to have to take a break here in just a moment. But um, Makiba, I'll let you start us off in thinking about family. I mean, obviously, this book is is really about one family, two branches of one family. But each individual thinks about family, thinks about their family ties, reflects on their family ties in such interesting ways. I mean, in thinking about what makes a family, what what are your thoughts about what Yaw Jesse was saying? So one of the things I always do with my students when we read a book is um, close read the title. And so as I was reading the book, I kept coming back to this idea of homegoing, like why would she name it homegoing, right? And so for me, the idea of the family, um, especially when we're talking about enslavement and the removal of kinship bonds, the family becomes your home. And I think that's true for many people, regardless of trauma, right? Like your family is your home. 
And so as we're seeing these uh, characters negotiate their family structures and home going, I think it's all related, right? It's like home is where your family is. It's where your heart is. We will pick up on that in a moment. There's so much more to say. We're talking about Home Going by Yah Jesse. With me today, Makiba Levan, assistant professor in English at the Grinnell College, and Rochelle Chase, a columnist for the Des Moines Register. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and we have been reading Homegoing by Yah Jesse, published in 2016. It is an epic novel that spans eight generations. It begins in Africa, in what is now Ghana, in the 18th century with two half-sisters, one who stays in Africa and marries a British soldier. The other is captured, sold as a slave, and sent to America, and we follow their descendants through time. With me today, I have Two expert readers, Makiba Levan is assistant professor of English at Grinnell College, and Rochelle Chase is the author of two nonfiction books about Buxton, Iowa, and a columnist for the Des Moines Register. And just before the break, we started talking about family and family ties in this novel. Makiba, I love what you said about looking at the title, about homegoing and this longing for home. And I mean, Makiba, in in every chapter, especially in every chapter about one of the uh, American diaspora, we just see that home, those family ties either ripped away in the most brutal ways or damaged in more subtle ways as well. And I mean, that's that's one of the most chilling things about this novel to me. What are your thoughts? Well, I think um, before I get into that, I also want to say something about the first part. So if we, there's a moment with Abena, right, um, on page 140 in my book, where she is asking the man who's trying to talk to her about uh, Christianity and Kumasi, right? And she says, what is your name? Who are your people? And I think that totally sums up how so many of us feel about family and how it situates us in the world, right? It's the names that they gave us and it's who they are and who we are in relation to them. And so when we think about the trauma of having those bonds, you know, severed or traumatized in a way, um, I think part of what we have come to know as what is so devastating about enslavement is that it at every turn, you know, attempts to destroy your kinship bonds. And humans are creatures of community, like we need community to survive. And so it's one of the most um, devastating parts. But that's why I love, um, you know, the interplay between Willie and Carson, because it's ultimately, you know, her acceptance of him and her love of him that gets him to think that maybe he, you know, can be someone aside from just what trauma has made him. Right. And we see how that plays out in his son. 
And uh, we'll dig into those stories a, a little bit more later on. Um, I, I'll give Michelle an opportunity to to respond, but I, I love that you went back to Abena's story because there's such an important factor in her family line. That was in the African line. So, mm-hmm. Rochelle, why don't why don't you share some of your thoughts in, in just thinking about family through all of these threads? Yeah, I think you both have hit upon what I was going to say. But the other thing is, it's just seeing the importance or the struggle to hold on to that. Every single one of these stories is, like you said, it's like holding it, being ripped away, etc. But it also shows, to me, you see this sense of resilience, this sense of like, Everything is taken away, that that crucial bond, that family. But these people, just like, you know, when I look at, you know, my family, even though I don't know this, my history like this, it's like a miracle to feel like I'm here today because of all of this Mm -hmm. that has happened, these family bonds broken, but still people, they endure, they find another way, they get through it, they get, I mean, they, it's just amazing to me. Um, And so, yeah, that was something that was very evident in every chapter. You see how that resilience plays out, whether the family was there or not. You see people making it and making those connections. Absolutely. The... um, you you brought up that story about Abena and and her interaction with the Christian missionary and um, Makiba. I want to go back to that because I think I, I think about this with the 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 Jewish Holocaust. I think about this with slavery. I think about this with some of the the huge moral questions in human history that a lot of us, when we learn that history, we think. If I were there, I would not have participated. I would not have been part of that. And I feel like this African story, I mean, it shows us how the colonizers really systematically destroyed the culture of these tribes. But it also shows us how the influence of slavery tore the families remaining in Africa apart. I mean, they they still had some of their family structures. They still had some of their tribal structures. But by bringing up Abena's story, I want to go back one generation. So first there was Afia, and Afia married a British soldier, and her son was Quay. Quay married back into his family's tribe, and his oldest son was named James. And James is working in the family business, which is the slave trade, which is capturing, you know, people from another tribe and selling them to the British. And he falls in love with this woman named Akosia. And she says, I want nothing to do with you because slavery is an abomination. And, you know, I cannot love a man who who does this. So he fakes his own death leaves his family, separates all of his ties so that he can be with the woman that he loves. But uh, Makiba, we see that that also came at a tremendous cost for him, his wife, his daughter, and their generations that went on into the future. I felt like that was such a powerful moment that showed us how slavery could destroy family bonds, even among those who, who remained in Africa. Makiba, what are your thoughts about that? Well, that's one of the things I really loved about this book, because we don't often get this point of view, right? Like the people who are left behind to to deal with the losses of their loved ones or the people who 
are, you know, aiding in the loss of others' loved ones and like what they must have struggled with. And so I love that we have a character in James who has decided that he's not going to participate in this any longer. I mean, you know, it takes, um, Akosuo becomes, you know, eventually becomes his wife to say, I'm not going to, you know, shake the hands of an enslaver. But even in that moment, right, he's like, well, do you shake your own hand? Right. We're all, we're all complicit in this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that we say today, right. When we talk about racial capitalism, we're all complicit. Um, I think it's often what people say to shut down the conversation of how we can um, eventually imagine better futures for ourselves. And I think James had that year as he was plotting to sort of get back to Okosua to realize that, that, you know, it's not enough to just say, I am complicit. How can I then change my level of complicity, right? How can I do something to maybe begin to make amends or at least um, set a different path forward for my children? And so he does that. And I, I find that to be such a courageous decision to give up everything that he knows and what was essentially a very comfortable life mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to basically spend the rest of his life in poverty, impoverished, but happy because he is giving his, his child, you know, a life that's not for him coming at the cost of the blood of, you know, people she is related to. Right. Rochelle. Yeah. And I think also um, when you see the, but the, just to carry that a little bit further, when you see the bad luck in theory that he's experiencing, you know, with the crops and such, and you think that, okay, this person would be beaten down or he feels like, oh, I should have not had this life, etc. There was a line there where he, again, expresses this sense of, but I did this myself. I had control mm -hmm. of my destiny. I did this. And there's this sense of pride that even though things may not be going well, which I think, Makiba, um, is what you're saying as well, it's this sense of pride that, you know, I chose this. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I was so moved by him because he was that person who was, you know, who made the stand and said, no, I won't do this anymore. Of course, mm -hmm. would he have ever done that without Akosia? Probably not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she, she was also the woman who made that stand, um, which well, is beautiful. I, I was going to say, I saw the same thing in Sam when we jumped to, you know, Essie's side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, this is the American, the American side. There, side. There are lots yeah. of names yeah. and people to keep track of. But go on, Rochelle. You know, where Sam was, you know, the person who had the most recent experience, you know, with Africa. And so he mm -hmm. comes and he's enslaved and he's holding on to that. He's like, I am not going to let go of my identity. I'm not going to let you, you know, beat this out of me. Um, and he went through horrific experiences trying to do this. And also with, you know, with his wife, who was Ness. Ness. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, setting their child free when they run away. And of course, then he's then, you know, he dies in a horrible way. 
But my point is that he was another one that I saw felt the sense of admiration that he's holding on to that despite all costs. I'm going to hold on to this. And it really made me wonder, you know, when you talk about colonialism and you talk about the way in which, you know, enslavers, you know, it's this process. It's a systemic process where you take people's ties, you take their identity, you take their culture, you take all of this away, you treat them horribly, you torture them. I mean, it's like beating someone down so they're afraid to, you know, do anything. Um, The point that makes me wonder, though, when you see all this pride that these people have in their culture before, if that had been in effect, if that hadn't been taken away during slavery, we would be dealing with an entirely different story, a different outcome of slavery today. It's also, it's just so important, as you were just saying, to look at how calculated Mm -hmm. and systemic that was mm-hmm. that that was certainly something that enslavers understood mm-hmm. that they needed to take away the culture and the names and the family ties to keep people in servitude mm-hmm. and in fear and not let them read not le- i mean all of it it was not an accident not yeah absolutely none of it was an accident so um looking at the american side uh, we we kind of walked through a lot of the African side, looking at the American side. So we we start with Essie, and then her child Ness, and and Ness thinks about her mother and just the incredible sadness that her mother always carried with her, and that was what she was known for for never smiling, and and Ness's name. That's where we really start to. I don't know. I feel like we start to see the importance of names and how they are taken from so many individuals. We see um, Ness's name came from the first English words that her mother ever agreed to say. It was goodness and and then became Ness. Um, But then we see Kojo. Kojo is the child of Ness and Sam. And I feel like every person I've ever talked to who've read who's read this book has a different character that um, they connect with most powerfully. Kojo is that person for me. Kojo Freeman, um, he's the child of Ness and Sam. He was taken by someone who who basically was on the Underground Railroad. He, he made it to um, Baltimore and he had a life and a wife and a family and he had a job and was so successful at building this world and he was such a good father and you know he did all the things that he wished that had been part of his life when he was growing up and then the fugitive slave act came along and although it seemed like he and his wife who was born into freedom should be safe They were not, and his wife was ripped away. She was kidnapped. She was sold back into slavery. She was pregnant, and she killed herself, but they ripped that child from her womb, and he grew up. So he's the connection as the generations go on, and I just felt like that chapter was – I mean, every chapter shows you how how destructive this culture, how cruel and destructive and – calculated this culture was. But that for me, that was the chapter that just, I I almost couldn't make it through. I stopped for several days. The first time I read that, I just couldn't finish that chapter. And that, that was just 
so much. And I'm sorry, I, I don't even know where I'm going with that, <laughs> Rochelle. I mean, that that chapter was the one of all the chapters that broke me. And there are a lot of hard things in this book. <laughs> yeah. So for you, was there a story like that? Uh, that... I don't know if I can pick one, um, one story. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't think I can pick one. Yeah. How about you, Makiba? Um, I was thinking about that <laughs> as y'all were talking, but can I actually just say something about Kojo and Anna's story? Yeah. Because I feel like it's so emblematic of how racial capitalism works. The interesting thing, and I'm so glad that um, yeah, Jesse made this point. The interesting thing about their story is that Anna was the one who was free, mm-hmm. right? Like she had actual freedom mm-hmm. papers. And in the end, it did not matter. Yeah. You know, enslavers saw a pregnant woman. Her being pregnant is probably the thing that actually drove them to kidnap her because it's like, oh, two for the price of one, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Pregnant women were, you know, high commodities. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's so emblematic of how everything in the society is set up to capture you. You know, no one is safe. Nothing that you can do as long as these structures are in place is going to be the thing that saves you. And we see that, you know, in future generations with the mines and the convict leasing Mm -hmm. and all that. But I thought it was such um, a brilliant choice to make the woman who is supposedly free, right, the person who gets um, sold. Because what we know about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 is that it basically just gave white people the opportunity to snatch any black person that they saw on the street, you know, and sell them to slavery. That's how we get 12 years of slave. Right. It's Mm -hmm. so many actual stories, people's lives, you know, came about in this way. And so if we have these structures in place, you know, no one is actually free, you know, slave slavery is supposedly over, (laughs) but then we get convict leasing, right. We had sharecropping. We get, um, you know, mass incarceration, which is what we have today with the whole loophole in the 13th mm-hmm. Amendment. So I think it's so important. This is a historical narrative, but it's so important to make those um, connections to the things that we see today with what Sadia Hartman calls the afterlives of slavery. Mm-hmm. These structures are still in place. Yeah. And and this is a novel. These are fictional stories, but any one of these stories could be true. And many of them were based on on true stories, on people that Yaw Jesse had researched. Of course, a lot of this historical record was also lost because nobody was keeping it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take a break. And then, Rochelle, you get to say what okay. you want to say. <laughs> we are talking about the book Homegoing by Yaw Jesse, published in 2016. It is a novel that spans eight generations. It begins in Africa with two half-sisters. One stays in Africa. The other is enslaved and sent to America. Our expert readers are Rochelle Chase. She is a columnist for the Des Moines Register and Makiba Levon, assistant professor of English at Grinnell College. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and we've been reading Homegoing by Yaa Jesse, published in 2016. It's a novel that spans eight generations. It begins with two half-sisters in Africa born into different tribes. One of them marries a British soldier who is engaged in the slave trade and stays in Africa. We follow her descendants in Africa. The other sister was sold as a slave and sent to the United States, and we follow her descendants through time as well. With me today, Makiba Levon, Assistant Professor of English at Grinnell College, Rochelle Chase, author of two nonfiction books about Buxton, Iowa, and a columnist for the Des Moines Register. And Rochelle, I said I was going to let you say what you wanted to say, and you get to, but in a couple of minutes, because I do want to move just one generation forward from Kojo Freeman, that son that Anna was carrying is a man named H. He never has another name. He was born into slavery because his mother was kidnapped in Baltimore, born into slavery. And then when he becomes free through emancipation in the Civil War, he sharecrops for a while, which, as you mentioned, is another kind of servitude. And then he's arrested for nothing, for nothing, and becomes convict laborer in a coal mine. And this is Another, just such an important part of our history that I think a lot of people don't know about where, you know, okay, slavery ended, but we found new ways to enslave black Americans. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even just, you know, it was for anything. You were just on a, just walking down the street. Oh, you're loitering. Or, I mean, it was anything. And this, again, just like slavery was a major revenue generator, convict leasing. I mean, you had governments, you know, the government was leasing out convicts to private corporations. I mean, and then also then the owners, the slave owners, in quotes, would get money if something happened. I mean, it was just, it was this major big business. So the point is, it that story was also very horrible when, again, he hadn't done anything. He's right. in jail, has no idea why he is. And he's then in this horrible conditions in these mines where some men, the, the, the spots that they had to climb through were so small and so they could barely get through. And some people would, you know, of course, die just trying to, to do that. Yeah. Um, but literally, you're there for all day, 14 hours or whatever, and then you're beaten if you didn't, you know, um, you know, get your ton out of the mine. I mean, it was just it was just horrific. It was just horrific. And the reason I wanted to bring that up with you, Rochelle, is you are my number one source for information about Buxton, <laughs> Iowa, which was a coal mining town in Iowa where black and white people both worked in the mines and, and lived in at least apparent harmony and equality. Um after H finishes his sentence, he moves to a community that felt kind of like that, where he worked alongside white men in the community. Did you did you recognize some of that Buxton culture in the community that he lived in after his sentence was complete? Well, I thought about that a little bit. You know, of course, the difference there being these are um, people, you know, that have decided to kind of do this. It wasn't necessarily this the corporation right. that was setting right. this up, and it wasn't necessarily that equality. But I did feel like there were some of the same things, because I do feel like even in Buxton, you know, part of that equality is circumstance, right? You're, you're working at the same thing. You have, you know, there's enough income for everyone. So therefore, there's really no reason to really cause this sense of strife and to introduce all this 
right? Well, I feel like the same thing is kind of going on in that city as well in that, okay, even if people did have, which you do see, had some animosity or racism or what have you, okay, well, we're all kind of working and doing the same thing. We're, we're experiencing the same problems. You know, let's kind of at least band together and work together to, you know, to get over this or to get equal pay or to whatever. So the point is, I did see some similarities from that standpoint of, you know, shared circumstances, helping people also get along. So from there, we moved to the Great Migration, and H's daughter, Willie, and her husband, Robert, moved to Harlem, New York City. And it felt like with H's story, we were making progress. Things were getting better. And then we see the intense racism and segregation in Harlem, in New York City. And and I know that that's what you wanted to talk about, this, that kind, the, the barriers that Willie encountered. Yeah. And, you know, Makiba was talking about, you know, some of the pr- really deep, you know, systematic issues that came out of slavery and colonization. Well, there's also the subtle things that were also used during that time, which is the whole colorism, right, where you're the lighter skinned blacks were treated differently and more intelligent. And, you know, there's all of this class race system around that, right? So then when um, Willie gets, you know, to the city, she's this great singer, beautiful voice, but she's told she can't sing in these clubs because she's not light enough. And there's the paper bag test, you know, so if you don't, if you're darker than the paper bag. Nope, sorry, you're, you're not acceptable. So my point is, you see that there, you saw that that was another way to divide people, you know, even in, to pit the enslaved against each other with the house, you know, slaves and the ones that work in the field. You have this in the towns, you have this today. I mean, you have this not only with the black community, but with other, you know, people of color. I mean, this has been a, a number one, not number one, but a, a very decisive, divisive factor to keep races with Within themselves, you know, pitted against one another. Yeah. And you see that in her story. And you see her seeing her husband passing for white on the street and he doesn't acknowledge mm. her. So I'm sorry, Makiba, you probably want to say something. <laughs> no, listen, I'm so glad you brought it to that scene because that was the one that made me want to fight. Like, I wanted to hit something. Yes. It was so unbelievable. Like, it's just, it was so unbelievable. Like, the idea that. First of all, the the scene in the bathroom was oh. just right. Oh. This was a scene in the My bathroom of a, a jazz club, goodness. and we we're not even going to explain the whole thing that happens there. But oh. this is an opportunity where Willie discovers that her husband has been passing, and he is hanging out with white guys who are mistreating black women. Yeah, like for fun, yeah. and so. Yeah. Uh, the way that Yah Jesse builds the scene up is just so brilliant because we see Willie, you know, she, the closest she can get to her dream of singing in these jazz clubs is cleaning it. Yeah. And she's seeing how these white men are treating, you know, the women and she's thinking, well, maybe this is for the best. And then she runs into her own husband that she doesn't yeah. recognize in this bathroom because he's passing. Yeah. And then we see what four years later, you know, she is mm-hmm. at the the sort of um, the border of of where you know black people can feel comfortable in Harlem, and she starts to notice all these white faces, and she gets uncomfortable and thinks to herself, even, you know, that the the racial mixing that she grew up in 
um, in Pratt City is a, is a long way away from where she is in the North. And I think these choices that yeah, Jesse makes are so brilliant because we tend to think of the North, you know, the great migration in the North as this bastion of racial freedom. Right. And, you know, this woman had experienced more freedom in the South in terms of just being able to be herself and, and be around people, you know, who were not black. And then she looks across the street and she sees her husband with a child and, you know, who is, I guess, essentially um, his wife. And the thing that struck me about that scene is that she had thought about the struggles that her husband had after she had Carson. Right. And then he seems to be sort of lovingly taking care of this white child that he has with this this woman that he marries. And then they smile at each other. And I just don't (laughs) I really want to ask you, Jesse, what she was trying to convey there, because I just don't get it. It's like this man abandoned you and your child. And you forgive him, sure, but like, what is he smiling about? <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good question. That is a really good question. Well, and and so the the next the next step is Carson, that son, um, Sonny, and and we have such high hopes again for Sonny, and he is just just beaten down in so many ways and and sucked into the the drug culture and it's so heartbreaking but there's this amazing paragraph that i just thought was so just on the nose for Sonny, the problem with America wasn't segregation, but the fact that you could not, in fact, segregate. Sonny had been trying to get away from mm. white people for as long as he could remember, but big as this country was, there was nowhere to go. <laughs> and I, that that yes. hit me over the head with a hammer, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm so glad you read that part, yeah. because I always tell my students this, and they're, they're so flabbergasted. I'm like, you know, the the fight against segregation is was was not just for black people to be next to white people. Mm-hmm. White people have the resources. It was an issue of resources. Yeah. And so it's not like, oh, we want to move into your neighborhoods. We want to be where you are. It's like we want to have the resources, and this is the only way to do it. Right. We want to live. We want yeah. to thrive. We want to be citizens. Well, yeah. Well, and even when we did have our communities, you know, still we were not and they were thriving. Then you still have that white influence coming into that city to tear it down or to regulate it or to, in the worst case, you know, lynch and and burn it. I mean, so, again, you can't get away even when you are segregated and you are thriving. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, about six or seven minutes left. And uh, I guess I'll start with the question. Why do you think people should read this book and who should read this book? And Makiba, I'll let you go first. I think Rochelle should take this one. I feel like I've I've just spoken a lot. Go okay, ahead, Rochelle. Rochelle, you go. Um, I think, again, I think everyone should read this book um, because it kind of goes through the Black experience from start to finish. And I'm not saying that that's the everybody's experience, but I'm saying it gives you an idea it also, again, gives you the reality of slavery, the complexity of it, and not the watered-down version that you're taught. I think it has so many jumping-off places where you could have study. Every chapter is, you know, like a segment of history that if it was read 
read in school, if it was actually assigned and you had, you know, lessons and questions and such study guides and discussions and reports and things to do off of that, you would be learning this more real history that we should be teaching and learning in schools and not this watered down version where black people are hardly even there or our experiences are there. Makiba? I completely agree with everything that you said. This is one of the things that I was so excited about. It's like, you know, the full brunt of pre-American history, American history, right? Enslavement from the viewpoint of people who were left behind. You know, there's so many points where you can stop and say, you know, what was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850? And, you know, yeah. how were people affected by this, you know, um, what did happen during the Great Migration? And then there are other things that you can read to learn more about it. I think it's just an extraordinary meta resource that can lead you to so many other um, resources to learn the things that we, (laughs) to this day, right, refuse to teach in schools um, so that people can learn the actual history behind the fiction. Yeah. When I first read this book, um, and there's this wonderful part of the book toward the end where Marjorie, who's the the final uh, female character from this uh, African line, is she's now in the United States and she's interacting with her favorite high school teacher. And her teacher is asking her about reading The Lord of the Flies. And, and Marjorie says she likes the book. And she said, but do you feel it inside you? And Marjorie mm-hmm. Didn't (laughs) with that one. But, um, you know, this book, I felt it inside me and I read it and I was like, every person should read this book. And but in particular, honestly, every white person should read this book. And I know I asked two black women to read this book and come and talk about it with me today because I felt like your voices needed to be amplified on this subject. But this is our nation's history. It is our world history. It is all of us. It is our history together. And Mm -hmm. I read this book before the murder of George Floyd. And then I read it again just now. And there is a moment in the second chapter of the book after Essie has been kidnapped and is being sold into slavery where one of the soldiers kneels on her neck. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. just the parallels just floored me. Mm. And there were so many moments in this book. And I found it as a white woman in her 40s. I found it to be so incredibly enlightening. And Rochelle, you know, you're the founder of Uniting Through History. And you say something on your Uniting Through History page about how the more you learn, the more you want to learn. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I can't understand people who don't want to learn our history. Mm -hmm. The more I learn, the more I want to know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I totally agree. So (laughs) the... um, it feels like such an important book for people to read. But, you know, we are at this moment where it feels like although, you know, Oprah told everybody to read this book. And so a million people did because that's what <laughs> happens when Oprah says to read it. It it feels like it's a subject that a lot of people want to label and discredit. Do you feel, Rochelle, that there's value in reading a fictional account maybe as opposed to to trying to dive into a history book with with a subject like this 
Uh, you mean instead of? Yeah. You mean for those people that are resisting? Or for anyone. Um, <laughs> well, I think, yeah, because I, again, it's fictional, but it isn't. So yeah. it's like, if it's a matter of, I'm not going to read anything, or I'll read this book, yes. But I think even be still, I think, yes, people should read this because it is still history. And you can, like we've talked about, Makiba and I both, it's like, then you jump off and you can get the real, the details. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Makiba, you Makiba? talked about wanting to, to teach this. I, I can imagine. Oh, that- <laughs> Absolutely. So many. I mean, it'll be a foundational text because there's so many parts that you can get at. I mean, and to your question about, um, you know, reading fictional depictions, right? Like, I always think of Toni Morrison, Beloved, and her just sort of coming across the story of Margaret Garner and her killing her kids so that she they wouldn't be enslaved alongside her, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And using that as the impetus to write Beloved. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, the history is there. Yeah. But it gives you such a personal way into that history. Mm-hmm. It gives you a way to feel it. Exactly. You know, for it to become a part of you in a way that I think the history books that we have read from with, you know, the one paragraph during Black History Month or what have you you know, just probably won't do. Yeah, you feel it inside you. Exactly. Makiba Levon, thank you so much for reading this book and for sharing your ideas with us today. Thank you. Makiba Levon is an assistant professor of English at Grinnell College. Rochelle Chase, thank you so much. Thank you. Rochelle Chase is the author of two nonfiction books about Buxton, Iowa, and she's also a columnist for the Des Moines Register. This episode of Talk of Iowa was produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our show is also produced by Danny Gear and Samantha McIntosh. I want to say thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe. <laughs>